All right, everybody. Well, good morning. Everyone's doing well. well let me uh, let me pray for us as we get started. Well, Father, it is our our joy to gather in your name and celebrate the work of your Son Jesus in His life and in His death and in His resurrection and what that has provided for us in a way of salvation by Your grace through faith and, and yeah, victory over sin and victory over Satan and victory over death. So Lord, what a, what a celebration these truths will be this morning. And we pray that You would open our hearts to both receive them and to rejoice in them, both to be humbled by them and to be exultant in them, both to bow in in worship, but then also to stand in praise and in awe of you. So Lord, do your work in us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, if you don't have a handout yet, there should be a stack back there in in the corner on the Music stand, but we're in Lesson 37 this week. Jesus, our victor. Jesus, the victor. That over the past few lessons, we've been considering the the great work of Jesus Christ as our substitution, and therefore as our atoning sacrifice. You know, His body has been broken in our place. His blood has paid the ransom. Uh, for our sin, the debt that was owed because of our sin. And so the truly good news of the gospel is that those who have been born again by the Spirit and united to Jesus Christ, um, that the holy wrath and justice of God has been completely you know, propitiated, was a word that Mark talked about last week, completely satisfied. Our guilt has been expiated. That was another word that... Uh, Mark talked about last week. It's been put on another and removed far away. That when Scripture talks about our sins being removed as far as the east is from the west, it's talking about how our guilt and our sin has been, it's been expiated. We've been cleansed. But that even more, that the very righteousness of Christ has been imputed. That was another word Mark introduced last week, imputed. In other words, accounted to or attributed to in some way, given to us. That His righteousness counts as our righteousness. And that the death of Jesus was enough to secure forgiveness and pardon forever. It wasn't just a step in the process. It was the completion of the process. I mean, it was the culminating event. That's why we can say, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's amazing that before, you know, the last day of judgment, before the final battle is fought, we get to claim victory in the present tense. You know, and that's that's what the resurrection really is meant to stand for in the Christian life of God's announcement that sin is paid for, that death is conquered, that the devil 
and his schemes have been overcome, and that, okay, we can say we have victory. Not just we will, but we have. Um, this is Jesus in John 19, verses 28 through 30, that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, which is an interesting to say when it's just really kind of 60% through the Bible, you know, in terms of chronology-wise, and what, you know, the amount of material that's still left to go, that Jesus at that moment would say, knowing that all was now finished, saying, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. You know, I think to really prove and to show, no, this was the promised Messiah. This was the one that the prophets spoke to and the Psalms pointed to, probably referring to Psalm 22, where David is talking about just his physical weakness and his thirst and his need. You know, and so here Jesus is going to fulfill scripture and say, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, it is finished. He's going to raise on the third day from the grave. He's going to present himself and he's going to be on earth and show himself to disciples and 500 different people. Not because the work, his work wasn't finished, but to prove that it was. Like here he is raised walking around. So there's eyewitnesses. 500 are going to see him. And then he's going to ascend. And what's he going to do once he ascends into heaven? What does the scripture say? He's going to, yeah, he's going to sit down at the right hand of God. And we talked about, when we talked about Jesus the priest, what, why does he sit down? Because his work's finished. It's his, his priestly work. You know, a, a high priest on earth would never sit down. Because it was a perpetual, yearly atonement and sacrifice because it was just a figure it was just a, a picture point but now jesus offers himself he's raised he ascends and he's going to sit down as a statement that that his work of providing uh, an atoning sacrifice was finished <clears throat> and so his life fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law his death satisfied the law's demands for justice and so for this reason, uh, we describe his work with that phrase, penal substitutionary atonement, which is another phrase over the last few weeks we've talked about. Penal, so judiciary. There's an actual penalty, an actual sort of legal uh, ransom that has to be paid and that Jesus is going to pay it. Okay, substitution, that someone has to stand in the place of those who deserve that penalty. And then atonement and standing in their place and offering up his body and his blood, it actually pays for, atones for the sins of others. And so for us, that's sort of central to our understanding of the atonement and our understanding of what actually happened at the cross of Christ. But there's going to be other things that happened there. And that's, some of, that's going to be our focus this morning, that yes, there was substitution. Yes, there was atonement. But then there was also victory. Um, that we usually wouldn't say Jesus was victorious over the wrath of God. We would say Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. But we would say there were things that he was victorious over. And so we're going to hit those this morning. You see there were the main point that through his death and resurrection, Jesus Christ not only satisfied the wrath and justice of God, he overcame sin, he defeated Satan, he conquered death. 
And so those are going to be kind of our focus this morning. But as we jump into it, what we're going to talk about very briefly, not get into them real big, but is what we're going to call theories of atonement. And the reason I want to talk about these is because they kind of situate, you know, how I want us to think about, how I think the scripture would have us think about this victory over sin and Satan and death. Because there's been a, a lot of theories over the centuries of the atonement that actually make like Jesus's defeat of Satan the main point. That this is actually what the atonement was about. And so even today, there's lots of different, um, some non-Christian perspectives of the atonement, others Christian perspectives of the atonement. But just so that you're sort of equipped in your mind for whether that's discussions that are going to come up, other uh, groups that are going to believe different things about the atonement, but also so that you can kind of listen for what really makes for a biblical understanding of the atonement. Uh, and men and women that we can sort of be in fellowship with, even if we disagree on some of the, some of the details, versus views of the atonement that are actually heretical. <laughs> and that, that, we, that really that we can't be in fellowship with because of what they deny and what they sort of emphasize. So that's why we're going to real quickly talk about theories of atonement to, to sort of locate Christ the victor in its right place. So yeah, various theories and perspectives of the atonement have been proposed over the centuries, and each of these are going to emphasize different aspects of Christ's work on the cross. They're all trying to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? What did his death and resurrection actually achieve? What did it accomplish? And so some theories are going to reject the deity of Christ. So there's what are called martyrdom theories that are really common in American liberalism even. That, that sort of Jesus was the great prophet and martyr of the, of the Christian sort of worldview and principles. And so he, he's just the ultimate picture of someone who lived for his values or lived for, to liberate people, who lived for, you know, whatever that would be inserted that he lived for and then died this martyr's death so that all of us can kind of look at it and go, that's awesome. That's great. Now, I need to live for my principles, my values, my... And so there's sort of martyrdom theories of the atonement that Jesus didn't actually have to pay for anything. Um, but rather, he, this was just the natural end of someone who was a prophet of sort of the religion that he stood for. Uh, there's going to be others that emphasize sort of the moral example of his death. And so there's moral influence sort of theories that when we look at the cross, we see, oh, look, there's the love of God on display. Look how much God loves us. And now let's love God in return. Let's go love others. Let's... And so we kind of look to him as sort of the ultimate statement of the love of God. And then that somehow sort of motivates us to change, to love others. And so there's sort of a family of moral influence theories. There's going to be others that claim that, that his death secured an accomplished atonement for all people of all time. And so they're what's called universal reconciliation theories. That, that it, at his death, he actually reconciled all people from all time back to God. And so you can imagine most you know, Unitarian churches <clears throat> and Universalist churches, they're going to hold to that view of the atonement. That, that Christ's death somehow you know, purchased forgiveness for everybody, no matter what. And so those would be <clears throat> several theories of atonement that I would sort of put outside what we would call evangelical you know, thought and, and understanding. Yes, Rachel. Is it about theory that you're saying? 
Yeah. So if you've ever heard of Ebionism, um, as a, it was kind of early in, in <coughs> sort of the, the history of the church, they started with that kind of view. But then you're going to have really just sort of liberal, you'll see that more in like even emergent churches in places, that kind of understanding of Christ as our great sort of martyr and example in that way. Um, Yeah, so he died and was sort of the martyr, as Muhammad is for Islam, so Jesus is for Christianity. Um, and so, yeah, so that would be an example of sort of another religion that would, would hold to that. Um, I think you, depending on the Mormon churches, I mean, you could certainly get that view within Mormonism where they're going to, because the, what's going to be denied is the very deity of Christ in these views, that he's not really fully God. And so he, he's just a, he is a mere man and a great man and a prophet <clears throat> who's going to die for his cause. And so in that way, um, that's really the meaning of the atonement. So, and, and yeah, a lot of sort of just modern. And I, I find, though, the hard thing is many people don't think about it. And so even when you get into a lot of churches or fellowships or gatherings, it's not that it's, they're going to write down on their doctrinal statement that we don't really believe Jesus was God, and here's our view of the atonement. It's more, it's passive in their theology and in their thinking. Um, recapitulation theory, you have that there in front of you. This would be, I think, within sort of Orthodox Christianity, within you know the history of the church. So Irenaeus sort of was the first to forward this theory that basically believe that the death of Christ sort of restored or recapitulated everything that Adam lost in the garden. So Jesus died to win back, okay, innocence, to win back peace with God, to win back dignity, to win back sort of the, the, the righteous state that Adam had lost, to win back life, to win back... Um, just sort of rule of the creation as God's vice regents. And so, so Irenaeus would have been someone who you know, taught this and believed this, that we would say still believed in the deity of Christ, still believed in the resurrection. And so there'll be some views of the atonement that don't believe in the resurrection, that don't believe Jesus was actually raised. He just died and did something, but he wasn't raised. He just sort of went straight to heaven. But Irenaeus, he's going to believe in the deity of Christ. He's going to believe in the resurrection. He's going to believe... Here's God who is holy, but that the real enemies are death and sin and, and sort of Satan. And so within this family of theories is what you get uh, called Christos Victor theories. That you'll, you'll maybe hear those more around because really in the, in the 20th century, those really took off um, by a guy named Gustav Alon was writing a lot. He actually wrote a book called Christus Victor, where what he really emphasized as he believed, okay, there was, yes, of course, some sort of substitution and atonement, but that was minimized. And what was maximized was Jesus defeated sin and Satan and death. That that's really what the cross and the atonement was about. And so we think that, yeah, that, that Christians can believe that. Just we would teach here that that isn't probably the, the central key aspect of the cross, as we'll get to here in a little bit. Ransom payment to Satan theory, um, which was actually probably the predominant view of the church for a thousand years, maybe more. 
And so Origen and a lot of the early church fathers held to this view that namely when Christ was put to death on the cross, that that was as a ransom payment to Satan who sort of had uh, the power of death, had us in his grasp, and that he was sort of the one that was owed the payment. So here's a quote from him. He says, to whom was the ransom paid? There's the question. He said, certainly not to God. Can it be to the evil one? For he had the power over us until the ransom was given to him on our behalf, namely the life of Jesus. And he was deceived, thinking he could keep his soul in his power, not seeing that he could not reach the standard required so as to be able to keep in his power. So here's Origen who said, okay, to whom was this ransom paid? Well, not, we can't, not God. There's no way. It's got to be Satan is who this ransom was paid to. That's who was owed. And so Jesus' death, that's what it secured. It's just, it was almost, you know, so, so the, the deceiver was deceived. And that God, here, here, take Jesus, he's put to death, and not realizing, okay, a payment was just made. And now on the third day, death can't hold him. And so out Jesus goes, along with all the captives that he sets free. And now the devil, I mean, the debt's been paid, and he has no more rights over Jesus or, the, or those who are with him. And so that's how, that was the predominant view of the atonement in the church for centuries and centuries and centuries um, that in a lot of the writing, that was some of the focus. You know, even, you know, Chronicles and Art, so the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Yes. Um, so, so when you don't have a really sort of developed perspective of the Trinity, where you actually, and I'm not saying, because Lewis wasn't trying to develop a perspective of the Trinity, but because of the absence of the Father in those stories and how Oslin is so central, but not just central, but it's almost like only him, and then what's above Oslin is sort of deep magic. It's, it's these laws and things that is never articulated as a person, as the father who actually is owed something, the father whose wrath rests on humanity. And so what you're left with is, yeah, the white witch was just fooled, that she's handed Oslin, she puts him to death, but then didn't know there's this deep magic, that when the, an innocent unblemished sacrifices offered on this stone table, the table cracks and, and death is wound backwards and time is wound back and, and now all of a sudden that death can't hold that person and all those that that person frees. And so that would be sort of an example of, of this ransom payment to Satan sort of theory and idea that, yeah, Christians for centuries uh, saw this as the predominant work of Christ uh, at the cross satisfaction theory that's Anselm and so that was also sort of after um, you know the ransom payment to Satan is losing ground that now satisfaction theory but not satisfaction in the way we think of it not satisfaction of the wrath and justice of God but rather satisfaction of his honor that God was so dishonored by sin so dishonored by the rebellion of Adam and man that that Christ is going to come be put to death, and in his death, sort of the honor of God is going to be satisfied, that he's going to be vindicated, that God will first sort of be justified in the eyes of the world, and those who turn by faith to him will be justified as well. So again, we would say this is within, sort of you can be a Christian and, and believe that, because we wouldn't see that as sort of rejecting the, the key things you can't reject to be a Christian. 
we would just say, okay, that's not the central idea, not the central point. Um, which is where we would put what we call substitution, substitutionary atonement theories. And so that's where, as a church, we would stand, is this idea that, okay, the real central aspect of the work of Christ on the cross is something between God the Son and God the Father. Like the, the person whose wrath has to be satisfied, the person who is owed, is God the Father. That he is the one who is actually orchestrating and sovereignly governing all these events. And that when Jesus' blood is spilled and his body is crushed, that is a work of the Son in propitiating the Father. That is a work of the Son in satisfying uh, the justice of God. And that the way, <clears throat> therefore, victory over sin happens is through substitutionary atonement. The way that victory over Satan and victory over death actually happens is primarily through the Son satisfying the righteousness and the justice of God and, and providing a ransom. And so substitution, just as a, as a doctrine, is sort of the leading edge of our understanding of the atonement, which is something that's going to set it apart from all these other theories of atonement, is that we would really emphasize Jesus as our substitute. So even in Arminianism, that they hold more to what's called a governmental theory of the atonement, where it's, okay, God is, is generally hateful of sin. He hates sin, but yet God loves us. And so Jesus is going to come and live and die, and the atonement is to show God's hatred of sin and his love of sinners. But it's not a particular atonement for particular people. Uh, nor is it a particular substitution that, that okay, you and me, we, we need a substitute. No, it's more sort of Jesus sort of provided this pool of atonement generally that by faith we dip into and sort of drink from. And so, and so yeah, then it's our individual decision to partake of that as opposed to, no, no, Jesus is your substitute. Jesus provided atonement for you. And now, by faith is the means by which you're united to him. And so, again, we would say you can, have a, you can be a Christian and hold to a governmental theory of the atonement. Um, it's just that would be a, a real distinction point. And so just that doctrine of substitution, that's why what Mark talked about last week is so vital. Is it, It's kind of a core central aspect of, of our understanding of atonement. And really, from Luther, Calvin, Jonathan Edwards that everyone that came up through the Reformed tradition, that they would, this is what was really new in some ways to them, was their emphasis on substitutionary atonement. Their em- emphasis on that being sort of the core doctrine that Christ's victory over all these other things comes out of. And so hopefully you see the reason why we covered that briefly, just theories of atonement. Because otherwise when we start thinking about, okay, the victory of Christ over Satan... There are theories, there are views of the atonement that say that's the main thing. That's actually the point of the, the main point of the cross is to, is to pay a ransom to the devil and then conquer him by fooling him, basically. And so we would say, okay, that's, that's a beautiful benefit of the atonement, but that's not the, right. the core, exactly. not the essence. Yes? Would you say a lot of these other theories come out of minimizing the sovereignty of God? It's like when you start to reduce his sovereignty in all things, then these other theories start to come out. 
Well, and this is the hard thing is is in no real soteriology, you know, view of salvation, how salvation happens and works, is um, everything's connected. <laughs> and so the sovereignty of God is connected, the depravity of the human condition. So, so it's like every piece connects to another. And so you, it's hard to tell which comes first. Is it that, okay, this view of sovereignty produces this view of depravity or need or atonement? Or is it this view of atonement is by consequence leading to this view of sovereignty. Um, and so it's hard to tell, um, but it is all connected. And so, so certainly we would say how we understand the sovereignty of God over salvation, how we understand the sovereignty of God over Christ's life and his death and what's actually happening at the cross and in the resurrection is going to affect our understanding of the atonement. Um, and our understanding of of who is owed what mm-hmm. is also going to affect our understanding of, of those things. Because in part of why even I hold to this view is certainly as we'll look at, I think there's a lot of passages that are going to teach this. But then just more than anything, like it's like God the Father and God the Son are the only ones that know what's happening mm-hmm. through the whole storyline. It's like the Satan doesn't know what's going on. Right. Uh, angels don't have a clue what's going on. His disciples don't have a clue what's going on. The Romans and Pilate, the religious leaders, certainly don't have a clue what's going on. So that even when Caiaphas said it's better for one man to die for a nation than the whole nation to perish. And then the, the gospel said, you know, and, and he said this, not realize, you know, because he was high priest that year, he was prophesying. And so he meant one thing. God's going to use it and means another. And nobody sees it. Even after the resurrection, his own disciples need convincing. Right, so yeah, devoid of the spirit in a lot of ways, and just it's just it's just so hard to grasp, and and so even that's important to remember um, just throughout church history as we look back on previous generations and eras of um, we don't realize what a product we are of our own history, mm-hmm. and how how much we believe because we see it in the scripture, but how come we see it in the scripture? Well, because people said, look, here it is in the scripture. Here's what it means. And it can be very, very right, but a lot of times we don't realize how shaped that is. And so, to, and so yeah, if we were to you know, sort of transport back in time and sit there with Augustine as, as he's teaching us from the Word of God, sort of his view of the atonement and, and ransoms paid to the devil, we would probably be going, man, that's all. Because it would be fitting within this broader teaching ministry of Augustine as a pastor, as a shepherd, in the way he's handling the whole Bible, that at that time is the way everybody handled the Bible. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 way, the amount of allegorizing, mm-hmm. the amount of, okay, the storying mm-hmm. of it all, because people didn't have Bibles. That's the other thing, is, is people couldn't read a lot of the, the actual documents and manuscripts. And so you were so reliant on not just what was being taught, but what was being read to you, what was being translated. And so that's why it's often good not just to read outside our group, but to read outside our generations. Because we really do realize, okay, there's a lot of people who loved Jesus and who loved the Lord and loved Scripture and are redeemed who they came to these conclusions at different points in history. Um, that now we get to the Reformation and now all of a sudden substitutionary atonement like stands out. And now, of course, we hear that and we go to some of these passages and we just see it everywhere. <coughs> Well, normally we see it everywhere because that's sort of 
what we've been helped so well by people to see, and what I think is really there. So I don't think it's deceptive. I think this is what the Bible is really teaching. But yet, some of what helped me see it is good teachers who helped me see it there. Yes, this is Romans three twenty three through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that means declared righteous before God, by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So there's your point on even sovereignty. So who put Christ forward? You know, is God the Father did as a, as a satisfaction to Him. You know, Isaiah 53, that it was, he was pleased to crush him. You know, why? Because it's, he's going to be the one that's going to pay for sin and atone for sin and release captives. And to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness. So even then, in the death of Christ, he's displaying his righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be just, meaning not winking at sin, not sin, letting sin go unpunished, that he will punish all sin, he will be just. And the justifier, meaning the one who can declare a sinner righteous without actually contradicting his own character, of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that's why at the, at the cross is where, Jesus, or where God the Father is actually able to punish sin and forgive sinners all at once, and not in any way compromise his own character as holy. And so we would yeah, say, so Jesus is in fact going to conquer sin, Satan, and death. We see that. But he's going to do it through offering himself to God the Father as a ransom for many, as a substitute for many. So he is condemned. We go free. You know, he satisfies the wrath of God and the justice of God on our behalf, and we get to stand before him and be declared righteous. So the victory of Jesus Christ, we'll get here to point two. That the Bible does in fact teach that Jesus conquered sin, that he conquered Satan, that he conquered death. Um, And the reason this is important is so that as we look upon the cross, we would in fact see victory not defeat, Mm -hmm. that when we look upon the cross, we don't see, because again, that's something that Peter couldn't get his mind around, as Jesus is saying, okay, now it's time for me to go, to be delivered over to to the Romans, and to be put to death, to be crucified. And what did Peter have to say about that? Yeah, far be it from you that you would do this. And so Peter's going to say, okay, get behind me, Satan. Your, your, Your thoughts are not on the thoughts of God, but of man. So even Peter couldn't understand that the crucifixion of Jesus would be victory. Um, just couldn't see it. We wouldn't have been able to see it. If you know that hymn, Up from the Grave He Arose? Yes. And so that's a, that's a hymn that's going to emphasize Jesus the victor. And so here's, here's the refrain of that hymn. Or I'll go, go back a little bit in the hymn. Low in the grave He lay, Jesus my Savior. Waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. But then up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He rose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose, hallelujah, Christ arose. 
So many of us grew up singing that, right? Well, well, what it's really capturing is this idea of, okay, he, he arose a victor from the dark domain, a victor over his foes. Okay, well, what are those foes? And there's going to be three that we're going to focus on this morning, the, the, the foes of sin and Satan and death. So turn, if you would, to Romans 6, 5 through 11. Yeah, that before God intervened in our salvation, we were enslaved to sin. You may know the story in John 8 when Jesus is going to offer freedom to everyone, including all the Jews that are around him. And they got offended. You know, and why were they offended? What the, you remember what they said to him in John 8 when he said that the truth shall set you free? They said what? Yeah, we're not, we're not, we've never been slaves to anybody. What are you talking about? We're, we're children of Abraham. What are you talking about? And then Jesus goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. And so the phrase practices sin is sort of the, the Bible's way of describing a life of sort of unregenerate, unrepentant, walking in sin. Um, that, that's what it means to, to he who practices sin, who lives in it without repentance, who walks in it without seeing their need for a Savior and turning to Christ by faith. And so, yeah, just kind of showed that here, you know, just natural to the human condition is this idea of that, what are you talking about, slave to sin? I'm not a slave to sin. I'm free. Romans 6, 5 through 11. Someone uh, read that passage for us. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but, for, but the life he lives... He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Yeah, so it's passages like this that we get words like vicarious from or substitution where it's, okay, us in Christ, us through Christ receiving all the benefits of his work. So you see there it says things like, okay, the old self was crucified with him. So that's vicarious. That's where we get vicarious from. We have died with Christ. We will also live with him. The death he died to sin once for all. So that's substitution. And so we get those words from those kinds of phrases to show how important it is to our understanding of the atonement and how salvation works and happens that, okay, Christ, we were crucified with him. Then what's the result? You look at verse 6 that Thomas read, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Here's why. It sets us free from sin. So that we would be, verse 7, set free from sin. As we'll talk about here in a little bit, verse 9, death no longer has dominion. So we really cannot understand, I think, that the conquering of sin in the life of the Christian without understanding how it has been conquered in Christ on our behalf. The, the very the fact that we're released from that dominion is because Christ conquered that dominion. 
on our behalf and that we're in him. And so sin. But then secondly, Satan is someone else that, that, okay, Christ conquered at the cross. That You remember when sin entered the world in Genesis 3, Satan is the one who brought that deceit and that temptation. And Adam and Eve are going to eat the fruit. They're going to fall. The world's going to be cursed. But then in the midst of that curse in Genesis 3.15, God's going to say to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And just that phrase, he shall bruise your head, he will crush you, is sort of that announcement that early that there is a battle here that's going to go on. But one's going to come from the seed of woman that's going to win. And it's going to, yeah, you're going to strike a blow, but he's going to crush you. It's going to seem like you have an upper hand, but he's going to destroy you. Yeah, Matthew, grab, uh, someone grab these passages. Matthew 12, 26 through 29. Someone else grab Acts 10, 36 through 38. Someone grab Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And if someone could grab Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. So there's a time where Jesus in Matthew 12 is, yeah, casting out demons. And the response of the Pharisees is, okay, he's, he's casting out demons by the power of the devil. That's what they're going to attribute his work to. And then here's Jesus' response. Someone read Matthew 12, 26 through 29. Yeah, so here's sort of Jesus describing in very general terms his work on earth. I mean, he's, he's come into the strong man's house and bound the strong man, Satan, so that he can plunder the strong man's goods, the souls of people that he sort of has in their grasp in some way that are in his dominion. And even more, Acts 10, 36 through 38. Yeah, so even here, Peter is going to describe in the sermon, okay, the work of Jesus was going around and healing and therefore caring for those who are oppressed by the devil. You see, okay, his kingdom coming and waging war against another kingdom, a lesser kingdom, but a kingdom nonetheless. You know, the Apostle Paul is going to view the death and resurrection of Jesus as a means that God can forgive our sins, as a means by which God is going to forgive our sins and cancel the record of debt against us. But then in doing that, he's going to disarm, to use Paul's words, rulers and authorities. And so read Colossians 2, 13 and 15 through 15 for us.
against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in him. And so here he's going to use those words. He's going to disarm these rulers and authorities, and he's going to triumph over them. But then how is he going to do it? What does it say in the first couple verses? The means by which he's going to triumph over them is by, yeah, by his work with, on the cross with his Father. That what is actually going to happen, that because of his work, God is able to make alive and forgive transgressions and trespasses and cancel the record of debt that stood against us. And who held that record of debt? Well, no, not, not so much Satan, but in this case, who holds it? Yeah, so when we get to heaven and books are going to be opened, who owns the books? Yeah, who's recorded it all? Who has that record of debts? Yeah, is Satan going to come forward and receive the books and open them? No, it's not going to be him. Well, he's going to, yeah, he's going to open the scroll and all the judgments that are going to come. And, and then there's going to be all those whose names are written in his book. That are going to go free. But yeah, just this idea of, okay, canceling the record of debt that stood against us. Well, that's surely the son's work of canceling the record of debt that is between us and the father. And by doing that, it disarms the rulers and the authorities. It plunders the, the goods from the strong man's house. Yeah, we see it again in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Somebody read that for us. Yeah, that the real power of the devil that he has over human beings is firstly their deadness to God and sort of everything that that entails, but also secondly, physical death. That there's a degree that, that God gives to Satan for killing people. You know, that he, he comes to do what? What is John? Yeah, John loves it. Yeah, to steal, kill, and destroy. That that's his work. That if God had allowed Satan to kill Job, what would Satan have done? He would have killed Job. <laughs> but God said, okay, you can, you can strike his body, but you can't have his life. Um, and, and yeah, if, if he was given the ability, Satan, and the freedom to do it, he would kill every human being on the whole planet. He wouldn't think twice about it. And so that's part of what it means that, okay, this one who has the power of death, that's why, actually, he was such a perfect instrument in the crucifixion of Christ. That Satan entered Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus to the Jewish leaders, who themselves were children of the devil, who turned him over to the Romans, who, you know, an empire that in many ways was under demonic control, who executed him. And so the momentary power that God gave to Satan, he used in the execution and crucifixion of Jesus, but yet all that was a part of God's plan because that's the very thing that God used to provide ransom and atonement for all those who were enslaved to him. So it's amazing how the devil really is the instrument of his own demise. I mean, that's absolutely how God is going to use it. Yeah, that God used from beginning to end to redeem his people from death 
and snatched them from the hands of the devil. And this is why Paul's going to say he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And it's not even just the devil, it's the entire demonic realm. It's them that he's talking about. He disarmed them. Yeah, because a way to think about shame is shame is when our hope in something is completely dashed. Mm. Something we boast in, something we glory in is proven to be vain. Mm. And we feel ashamed. And so here, yeah, we have that the, there's this moment where demons are, are rejoicing and celebrating and triumphing. And there's this moment where Satan is like, I did it. And then Jesus sort of shows up again. And he's alive and raised and, and, oh, and not just that, but he's sort of atoned for sin in such a way that all these men and women who are in Satan's grasp that can actually be removed from his dominion. And he's disarmed in having any ability or power over them any longer. And so that, that's, and God used Satan to do that. Someone, Eric, were you going to say something? I was just going to say, such an amazing thing that how Satan still tries to deceive those who've been redeemed into yeah. thinking that he still has power over them. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's such a subtlety. Yeah. He has such power in Christ yeah. and in the Spirit yeah. that he will still try to get after us and, yeah. and condemn us and say, you yeah. don't have power over that. It's yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's one reason why this doctrine is so vital is it's one of the, what will be one of the implications we, we get to is just this idea that yeah, in the life of the Christian, yeah, that we're not children of the devil. We're not in his dominion. He does not have that power over us. And so even then, anytime we're given to him for, the, for sort of the, the sifting of our faith or in some way to put some dis- to destruction, some aspect of the sinful flesh, even then it's the way a surgeon uses a scalpel. I mean, it's, it's, but the scalpel has no dominion over the patient. Um, because he's just a scalpel. Um, Someone yeah. was explaining to me one time that life in the resurrection is not just simply being dead and being brought back to life. It's not the same person mm. who's brought back to life. It's a yeah. whole new way yeah. of standing. And that's what you were just saying about yeah. Christ and his resurrection. He came mm. back and he was unlike anything that they expected. Mm. Yeah, and so the idea that there were new creations in Christ yes. when we come forth, the idea that, okay, that we're filled with the Spirit of God, that we're not what we were. It's um, like the seed that goes into the ground is nothing like the plant that comes out of it. And that's where, and we'll get to that passage in a minute, in 1 Corinthians 15, why, why Paul's going to say, hey, do we not know that in order for something to live, it has to die first, mm-hmm. that the seed has to grow, go into the ground and die, and from that we get you know, life. But then thirdly, death. That Jesus conquered death at the cross. That not only was the devil the instrument of his own defeat, but even death was the implement of its own defeat. Um, for all who are in Christ Jesus, that is. So 1 Timothy 1, 8-10, I'll just read some of these. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. 
in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Abolished death in the life of the Christian, where we don't have to fear death. It doesn't have hold over us anymore. Or 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, verse 50, Brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's just a resplendent passage. It's one of the great passages on on Christ the victor and the nature of this victory that we've received. So the thing that brings death is sin. That's why he's going to call it the sting of death is sin. We sin and death comes. Sin is the sting. Death is the result. But then the thing that's going to judge us and hold us in custody is the law. So that's what's going to hold us in custody. It holds everyone in custody until the the judgment, the time of judgment. But for those who are put in Christ, that time of judgment has already passed because who was judged in our place? Christ. And so the law holds us in custody because we're sinners and the sting of death is sin. It's holding us in custody until death. But then for us, that death came in Christ. And now that death comes, the penalty is paid, and we go free. Even death no longer has dominion. But for those who are outside Christ, who reject Christ, well, that law holds in custody to another judgment day when they'll stand before him and books will be opened and deeds will be judged against the law. And now death will come again. And then in the end, Jesus Christ will even destroy death. I mean, this will be such an interesting moment. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26. For he must reign, meaning Jesus, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That will be the last thing he destroys. Turn to Revelation 20, if you would. We'll look at verses 11 through 15. Someone read that. Uh, yeah, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of 
Yeah, so the lake of fire is the place of eternal death. And ironically, death will be thrown there. And so the first death will be thrown into the second death. Which is why the first death will be no more. The temporary holding place of the dead, that's Hades, where the, where, where the dead are temporarily held until that day, will also be thrown into the eternal place of the dead, which is the lake of fire. And so you see, and, and we're probably going to be there for this. I mean, there, there may be some degree in which we're witnessing this happen, where actual death is thrown into the lake of fire. Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. Just as this final punctuating statement that why he's going to wipe away every tear and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So we'll be in heaven forever, knowing that death will be no more. We've seen it put to death. We've seen it destroyed. So that'll be that final sort of victory statement, where Christ is going to show and prove that he's conquered every enemy of his people. So implications. Um, Yeah, I wish we had longer for this, because there are many. Um, there's just some logical implications, I think, that since Christ has conquered sin, and for all those in Christ, he's conquered sin on their behalf, we're no longer living in the dominion of sin. We still sin, but not because it has dominion over us, which I think makes it all the more tragic. Uh, It's voluntary. Um, It's going back to the prison that we were freed from, walking into a cell, and putting shackles on just to feel it again. And the shackles can't close. They don't lock. The doors don't close. They're wide open. But that's part of what we do. Here's this prison that we were once enslaved in. Shackles that bound us. Doors that were locked. There was no way out. Christ comes in, sets us free, and we go out. And we're in his kingdom, in his palace. And then from time to time, Satan goes, hey, you you really ought to come check this out. You remember the food over here? Remember how great it was in the cell? Remember how good it smelled there? I mean, just all that. And we go, oh, maybe it's like the children of Israel in the wilderness remembering Egypt all of a sudden with all this fondness. And then we just sort of mosey on into the prison and walk down to our jail cell and walk in and try to shut the door. We can't, but we go in and we try to put shackles on. We can't. Which is why after a few minutes there, what do we begin to feel? Not just conviction of sin. But I'm sure a lot of you feel how unnatural sin is to the Christian, where you start sitting here going, I don't belong here. <laughs> this is not my house. And, and so repentance and conviction, and because, it, because again, sin doesn't have dominion over us. And so, so just I think there's an encouragement in that, in the way we live, that, to know that, okay, sin does not have mastery over you. We still sin because we volunteer. We just, from time to time, lose our minds <laughs> and lose our memories <laughs> and just sort of stroll back in just to give another lap around and see what it's like. And then, then we always regret it. We always at the end go, well, that wasn't worth it. Well, that didn't pay out what I thought it was going to pay out. But by the grace of God in Christ, yeah, we are new creations in Christ. Even Romans twelve or Romans six, twelve through fourteen, you know, we read five through eleven earlier. Twelve through fourteen is sort of a great so here's here's sort of what 
Christ conquered for us. And then 12 through 14, here are implications of that. You know, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So he would never say that to a non-Christian. But he would say that to those who have been brought from death to life. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law but under grace. Yeah, because again, law hold, held us in custody. That's what held the bars of the door shut. That's what held the shackles on, because there was no way under the law for us to set ourselves free. Christ had to come in, make atonement for us, satisfy the law's demands, and now the law has to let us go. So that's where the, the doors have to open, the shackles have to come off, we have to come out, because the law doesn't have dominion over us anymore because Christ has satisfied us. And because of that now, sin doesn't have dominion. That we're actually able to resist sin and pursue righteousness. They're actually able to repent, and not just that, but repentance actually matters. You realize if there's no sort of, if Christ hasn't defeated sin, if Christ hasn't defeated the devil, then repentance doesn't really mean anything. You're actually just turning in circles in the jail cell. You know, yeah, it feels like you're turning around, but you're not released from anything. But for the Christian, no, repentance actually really means something. It really matters. There's actual real freedom from sin. But also living beyond the control of Satan, that we can be armed to stand against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 6, 10 through 13. We really can resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 6 and 7, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9. Yeah, how do we resist the devil according to those passages? Well, firstly, by being humble. The best way to serve the devil is to be proud. Uh, because proud, when we're proud, we're just we're easy pickings. Submitting ourselves to God, which always produces prayer, which God always hears from his children and grants according to his will. Yeah, point C, living without fear of death. Boy, I wish we had 10 minutes on this. Just the difference in living life without the fear of death, where death is just a doorway. You know, I've said this before. When we stand up here in a moment, is anybody going to be afraid to walk through that door? Why not? It's just a passage. It's just a passage. You're just moving from one door to the next. And that's how Scripture talks about death for the Christian. It's just a door. And what if on the other side of the door was paradise? Then would you really be afraid of walking through it? What if on the other side of the door was the face of Christ, was his kingdom, you know, in, in real time, and that you could see and tangibly hear? And yeah, then how much less should we fear the door going through? Secondly, we need not fear the second death, for we've been ransomed from it. Thirdly, we need not cling to this present world for our inheritance is elsewhere. So all the promises that Jesus makes about don't love this world, your inheritance is in heaven, those make no sense if he hasn't conquered death. We would have none of those assurances if he hadn't actually settled the issue about death. But he's able to say, yeah, don't cling to this world. Set your heart there. Why? Well, because death is no more for us. And so that's why those promises actually matter. And then finally, just the truth that nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you, you, you know, Romans 8, 31 through 39, where Paul's going to just list all these things that won't ever separate us from the love of Christ. And 
and they're all related to sin, death, and Satan, <laughs> that no longer will those other, th- other things ever separate us from the love of God. Because why? Well, because we overwhelmingly conquer through Christ Jesus. So yeah, it's a great passage as you go this afternoon or in the days ahead just to take Romans 8 and just read through in the context of, okay, Christ, our our victor. Um, All right, I know that was fast, but uh, Eric, will you pray for us? Amen.